0: Hello and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Lulu. And I'm your co-host, Pie. Before we dive into the proper episode, is there anything you've been into or up to since we last recorded that you'd like to tell listeners about Pi? Well, I am currently doing National Novel Writing Month, where I try to write 50,000 words of a book over the course of the month of November, which is very fun, but also is not leaving me a lot of free time to do any reading. I have managed to read two very short things. One was the short novel Half a Soul by Olivia Atwater, which is just a very delightful Regency fantasy romance about a woman who has Half of her soul stolen by the fairies and has to team up with a grouchy sorcerer in order to try to figure out how to get it back. And it was just really funny and cute, and I loved it. I also read the novella A Spindle Splintered by Alex E. Harrow, which the author has described as Into the Spider Verse meets Sleeping Beauty, which is a pretty accurate description. Honestly, it's kind of a multiverse story about a bunch of different versions of Sleeping Beauty who all get together and are trying to stop the sad ending of their story from happening. And it was also really great and funny and had a meme reference that basically made me scream when I got to it. But that's kind of all I've had time to read lately because I've been so busy writing. I am not doing National Novel Writing Month because I am not a speed demon when it comes to drafting books like you. So I've mostly just been keeping up with my coursework and college and stuff. But I recently started my fall break. So I've been reading a little bit more than usual. And I just finished a Psalm for the Wild built by Becky Chambers, which was this really nice, peaceful science fiction novella about a tea monk and a robot hanging out in a far future solar punk society. And Becky Chambers writes science fiction that's like very peaceful and hopeful, and about the inherent goodness of people, which I really like reading about. And a Psalm for the Wild built definitely fit into that vibe. So that was kind of a nice, sweet thing to start off my break reading. I also just started reading Legendborn by Tracy Dion, which is fantastic so far. It's a young adult urban fantasy book about a girl who gets involved in a secret society descended from King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. It's really, really good and explores like a lot of interesting stuff about urban fantasy and societies and racism and magic. And it's gonna be the topic of our next episodes. So if that sounds interesting, you can stay tuned for that. I love Legendborn. I am very excited to talk about it. However, today we are not here to talk about King Arthur. We're here to talk about necromancy aka books where the main character can raise the dead and talk to ghosts and other fun and spooky topics. The books that we're going to be covering are Sabriel by Garth Nix and The Bone Witch by Rin Chupeco. So Sabriel is a fantasy novel published in 1996. I would consider it YA even though that age categorization didn't really exist back then and it follows 18 year old Sabriel the most recent in a long line of family necromancers who kind of keep the evil dead down and banish the ghosts and like stop demons from eating people and they're kind of like they're necromancers but they're good guys which was a fun subversion and they're called abhorsens which is basically a hereditary title for necromancers who laid the dead to rest they're basically lawful good necromancers instead of the usual chaotic evil that's found in most other fantasy books and it's basically a road trip through a fantasy kingdom because sabriel's father the current abhorsen goes missing around the same time that some truly evil dead creatures start to So she has to find out what happened to her father and how to stop these creatures. And it's kind of like a fun, classic fantasy road trip with a kind of unconventional protagonist who has an unconventional type of magic. I am of the opinion that reading a classic fantasy book about people trying to get from point A to point B while being beset by evil monsters is really good for the soul, actually. Sometimes you just need something simple, and it's about people road tripping while zombies try to eat them, which is basically the plot of Sabriel. It's a good plot. I'm agreed with that opinion. Somehow I actually never read this book, even when I was a kid, even though A, Sabriel is definitely a really iconic fantasy book that many people read as a kid. And B, I actually read the sequel, which is called The Rail, and it's about different characters in a magical library, which is sort of mysterious because Sabriel is definitely up my alley. I just somehow never read it, so it was kind of fun to finally read it and be like, oh my god, I've been missing out on all these years you really have been missing out. It's a great and fun book. So one of my favorite things about Sabriel is the world building in it, which is really interesting because it's split between Anselstyr, which is a magicless world kind of reminiscent of around World War I or the beginning of the 20th century in Europe. And this is where Sabriel grew up in a boarding school, but there's also the old kingdom where she was born and where her family is from, where magic abounds. And it's much more medieval with kings and swords and magical creatures. And it's kind of this really fun split between like a more modern world and a more ancient one that happen to be like side by side but are totally different. And Sabriel's family hails from the Old Kingdom but she was raised and educated in Ancilsir mostly to keep her safe from the dark magical forces that are constantly hunting down her family. So she doesn't actually know very much about the Old Kingdom. So as she's traveling through this land She's learning about it for the first time and the reader gets to learn about it as well, which is a very clever way of like having this completely different world, but also having the protagonist be unfamiliar with it. And it's just super interesting that Garth Nix came up with these very separate worlds that like the story takes place in both, but they're completely different. And I really like it. Yeah, I enjoyed that as well. There's an interesting divide between Steer, which is sort of modern progressive technology looking towards the future and the old kingdom, which is very much about the old ways and magic and royalty. And like you said, it's kind of fun because Sabriel was raised in Anselsteer, but was always a bit of an outsider because she has this magical attachment to her family and was learning necromancy under her father's tutoring, kind of like long distance. But she's also an outsider in the Old Kingdom now because she spent so long away from it. And part of the book is not just going on a road trip to save your father from some evil zombies, but also kind of learning about your destiny and family and heritage and the place that you were born in, but haven't called home for a really long time. And I think it was kind of smart because it's a good way to introduce the reader to this sort of complex fantasy world without it feeling overwhelming because Sabriel knows a little bit about it, but not a lot about it. So as she's traveling through the Old Kingdom, she's like, oh wow, this place has changed a lot since I was a kid. Yeah, it's very fun because the Old Kingdom as we see it in the book is very different because there's only one abhorson, and there's usually an entire family of them and there's like one primary Abhorsen. And also as we learn, At some point in the past, the royal family was deposed, and so basically the whole kingdom is kind of like in chaos, and everyone's being hunted by zombies, and it's very much like not the world that it's supposed to be. So Sabriel has to kind of try to figure out like what exactly went wrong and how to fix it while she's also trying to find her father. I also really enjoyed the magic system in this because like you said, uh, Sabriel's family has this hereditary position called the Ephorson, who's sort of the head necromancer in the old kingdom and keeps people safe from the dead and the ghosts and creatures trying to return from beyond the grave. But there's also a really neat kind of magic system outside of that, which is that that the Obhorsen has magical bells, which all have different functions. So one can be used to control the dead if you ring it, but another one kills everyone who hears it rung, including the listener which I just thought was very neat because I feel like a lot of fantasy books, you have like your wands and I don't know, your magical staffs and your potions and your spell books, but Sabriel, the magic is very tied to sound. And in particular these magical bells that all have these like very interesting and specific uses that I thought was really neat. Yeah, it's really fun. There's also a way that you can channel magic through whistling or singing, which is also a pretty unique idea for a magic system. And I think the bells in Sabriel are my favorite part of the magic system just because they're so unique and each bell has a different use. So like every time Sabriel is trying to vanish a zombie or a ghost, or trying to do magic, she has to figure out which bell works best for the situation, and like, is the cost of bringing the spell worth banishing this creature? So it's just really fun to see her like have to figure out what she can use the different bells for in which situations. And also, like, there's a divide between the old kingdom and Ansalir. There's also two types of magic within the old kingdom. So there's charter magic, which is much more orderly and is kind of channeled through symbols and runes, and that's what a lot of the Abhorson use. But then there's also free magic, which is really powerful and unpredictable. And a lot of the creatures that the abhorcent oppose come from this, but also if you can harness it briefly, it can be like incredibly powerful and a strong tool. So I like that there's also two different worlds. And then within the magical world, there's different ways of using magic. And it made it feel very like fleshed out and interesting because there's different characters who have different methods and like different moralities as, as opposing to magic, which I thought was neat. A third very fun part of the world building is the way that death is envisioned in this world because the Abhorsons don't just summon ghosts or banish zombies they can also walk in death and death is kind of imagined as this river with different stages of gates that are like waterfalls or whirlpools or other things like that and it's really cool it's great imagery it's I read St. for the first time in middle school and the image of like death as like a river and if you pass through the final waterfall you can never come back and you like move on to like the afterlife It was always kind of stuck with me because it's so unique and interesting I don't think I've ever seen a fantasy book with the afterlife portrayed that way before it does actually remind me a bit of the rivers in greek mythology because like you have the Ashtaron and the Styx and all that stuff but it's like a slightly different setup in that it's not that there's a river sort of dividing The human world and the world of the dead but it's like the river itself is part of the world of the dead and so the chapter that opens the book is this prologue about sabriel's mother dying in childbirth and sabriel herself almost dying and her father going into death trying to bring back his wife and daughter and he can't manage to get his wife back because she's passed beyond too far but he manages to get sabriel because she hasn't gone past the furthest gate and bring her back so you're really introduced to this like very creepy interesting setting and there's always stuff about like monsters lurking past the final gate and like diving into whirlpools to get people back and I enjoyed that death is this very physical place that characters can visit and it takes a toll on you every time you visit like the Abhorsen all have like really eerily pale skin because they've spent so much time walking in the world of the dead where there's no sunlight and it leaves like a physical mark on you as a person. It's just very cool I love the imagery that's associated whenever Sabriel goes into death. Also, because this is a fantasy road trip, TM, Sabriel also acquires some companions on her trip to find and save her father. And the first is Mogget, who is a snarky demon who takes the form of a white cat. And he's a free magic creature that's been bound by the Ebhorcen line for a really, really long time. So he helps them, but there's always the sense that if he got loose, he could really cause some chaos. And I love Mogget so much. I also love Mogget. He is... One of my favorite characters in the whole book is just really snarky and kind of annoyed about having to help Sabriel, but also begrudgingly cares about the importance. I'm the founder of the Moggit fan club. I just think he's fun. And I'm like the co-president and treasurer. He is just fun because at times he's very cat-like, but also you become aware that beneath the surface of someone who just likes catnip and taking naps and being snarky, there's this like roiling, creepy, demonic presence and Moggy even can't quite control himself. And if his collar was to be taken off, who'd revert to being this dangerous free magic creature who like is only kept from killing people because the Abhorsen have sort of like placed this magical spell on him. So there's always this tension where like Sabriel's prime ally is also kind of one of her own enemies. Yeah, there is a part later on in the book where Mogget's collar is taken off and he immediately tries to kill Sabriel and then she manages to get the collar back on him and he's incredibly embarrassed about this whole thing. I was just like, oh, I, I'm sorry about that. I sometimes turn evil. It's very That was funny. so funny. He's just like, yeah, um, that was that was kind of embarrassing. I really lost my cool there for a moment. Anyway, Moggit's just a very fun character because he also knows a lot about the world of the Old Kingdom due to a bunch of spells placed on him by the Abhorsons he can't really tell Sabriel that much about it so you get the sense that he knows a lot of stuff but he can't actually like outright say it. He can only just give her a lot of hints about how like the situation in the kingdom came to be and how she was able to fix it and what happened to her father which is kind of fun because otherwise if he could just sit down Sabriel and be like alright here's the deal with the Old Kingdom it would be a pretty boring book so the author has to come up with a way that he like knows all this stuff but actually can't talk about it. Yeah, he's kind of under what they call in Irish mythology, a gesh, which is when you can't do something because you've got this magical oath on you. So he's really powerful and knows a lot about free magic and charter magic and the Old Kingdom's history, but he can't really quite tell Sabriel all of that because he's been bound so thoroughly by the Abhorsten to keep him from, you know, going wild and killing everyone. The third member of the traveling party that Sabriel ends up forming is a guy called Touchstone, who is a cursed guardsman and charter mage who has turned into a ship's figurehead for 200 years. And he's kind of a fun character. He's like sort of a guy out of time because he doesn't remember anything that happened for the last 200 years. And he has like no idea what's been going on in the kingdom since then. He's a little bit clueless, but he's kind of fun. He doesn't even know his name because he's been bound in magic for so long that his memories are all kind of scattered. He's exactly forgotten how he came to be there and who bound him up in a ship's figurehead. So they call him Touchstone, which is the name of like a fool kind of character. If you've read As You Like It by Shakespeare, the kind of clown fool character is called Touchstone. So Mogg encounters him and is kind of like, this guy seems like an idiot. I'm going to call him Touchstone. And then it just sticks for the rest of the book. Yeah, even after they find out what Touchstone's real name was, he just keeps going by that. So it turns out that the threat that Sabriel's father is facing is Caragor who's this creepy villainous necromancer from 200 years ago in Touchstone's time. And the three of them end up having to find Sabriel's father and defeat Carragor's growing army of the dead before it becomes too powerful. And there's very much a ticking clock on this book, because I think it's like as soon as the moon reaches a certain phase, Carragor will become powerful enough to cross the wall into Anselstir, like the divide between the two kingdoms and become not only incredibly powerful in the kingdom that's full of magic, but also begin taking over Ansel's steer and all its, like, magicless, innocent inhabitants. So it's a, it's a pretty stressful book. Like, they are trying to get from point A to point B, so there's a lot of, like, fantasy road trip shenanigans. But there's also a sense that, like, if we are not fast enough, we are all completely doomed. Yeah, it's a good way of raising the stakes as well, because the book starts with Sabriel's father disappearing, and she's not quite sure what happened to him, but, like, Surely he's fine. He's the young who he can take care of himself. But as she goes on this road trip looking for him, she starts to realize that, like, actually her father's disappearance is connected to this really big and really powerful and really bad necromancer that she has to stop as well if she ever wants, like, any chance of saving the kingdom and finding her father. So she starts out just being like, I'm going to find my dad and then I'm going to go home. But actually the stakes are much bigger. Also, Karahor is quite creepy when they meet him for the final showdown the way that he's described as this creature that's been alive for hundreds of years through unnatural methods is very creepy and like gross and this is very much someone who should not be existing in this state. still he should have passed on peacefully to the afterlife but instead he's been using dangerous magic to keep himself alive for years and years and years he's just he's very creepy he's not in the book that much but we run into a lot of his minions so you're like sometimes when a villain isn't in most of the book and then you meet them at the end it can be a little anticlimactic because you're like well that's it like really? That's the man behind the curtain who's been like pulling all the strings? But the way is described is just genuinely creepy and unnerving. And there's also this whole thing where he has secret ties to what happened to Touchstone that Touchstone doesn't really remember, which I thought was quite interesting and like unfolds over the course of the book. Yes, I love the villains in Garth Nix's Abhorsen books because he does a really good job of emphasizing the way that like these creatures are completely unnatural like maybe they were people once but they've spent like 200 years like using magic to stop themselves from going on to the afterlife and there's like nothing natural or alive about them and just because they take the form of a person doesn't mean they are a person they're kind of more like humanoid abominations that are like feeding out other people's magic in order to stay alive and it's just really fun and creepy and i like it a lot good spooky necromancer stuff if your book about necromancers is not spooky you're not doing it correctly Exactly. Another thing I liked about this book that wasn't really a world-building thing was I really enjoyed how Sabriel was this well-written, competent female lead. And this book was published, like we said, in the 90s, and it's a fantasy book. So I can't imagine there was a ton of female characters who were leading books. Like obviously we had Tamora Pierce and stuff, but now I feel like there's like way more. So I did appreciate that Sabriel is just like well-written. She's here to do a job. She knows a lot about magic. She doesn't have to be saved by a guy all the time. And even though it's written by like a male author, I didn't ever feel like that weird like this is a woman being written by a man thing you can sometimes encounter. Yeah, I've definitely read fantasy books with female protagonists. And I could tell like even without reading the author bio that it was written by a cis guy, but I didn't get that impression at all from this. Like Sabriel is a girl, but he's also a competent badass necromancer. And that's just kind of like accepted a part- as part of the world building. One thing i really liked is that she's not the first female abhorsen and it's totally normal for a woman to pick up that mantle and you don't really get the sense that there's like strong sexism in the old kingdom like i think they've had queens before and they've had female leading necromancers and it's just kind of a natural part of the world that there are like competent powerful women everywhere which i enjoyed because obviously it can be good to read a story that's about people like smashing the patriarchy and breaking down boundaries But it's also nice to just read a fantasy book where female characters get to be cool and badass without anyone really questioning whether they're allowed to do that. And Sabriel is very much a book where the main character just gets to be cool and all of her problems about coming into her own as a necromancer and embracing her family's legacy have nothing to do with her gender. Yeah, agreed. I think sometimes I can enjoy reading books that interrogate misogyny and the patriarchy in a fantasy setting but sometimes I read them and I'm just like okay so you can have like dragons but the patriarchy still exists why are we still doing this and I enjoyed that Sabriel is just like a competent female character and no one's like a woman as the Abhorsen how strange they're just like oh hi Abhorsen can you just like help us with these zombies please which is very satisfying. It was great but she still obviously has some insecurities because she's really young to this and she doesn't know everything she should and most Abhorsen are not, are not raised in Anselsteer. and even though she knows some magic and has sort of been introduced to necromancy and the Book of the Dead by her father, she's still sort of learning on the go. So she has these insecurities and character growth, but a lot more of it is just related to coming into her own as a necromancer and embracing her role as the Abhorsen, not like having to overcome boundaries based on sexism, which I liked. Yeah, it was pretty satisfying. There's also some light romance in this book between Sabriel and Touchstone. I think I could it could have been better developed, but it also didn't really take up much of the book, so I'm not complaining. It's not one of those books where people meet and are like, oh my god, we're wildly in love and we're changing the entire trajectory of our life to be together. And I'm like, do you even know each other's last names? It's just kind of Sabriel and Touchstone go on an adventure together. And at the end, they hang out and Touchstone's like, I hope you don't mind. I love you which is a very respectful way of declaring your love, I suppose. Touchstone drinks respect woman juice, love that for him. He does. I like Touchstone because he's like, as we learn, he's a really good warrior and he's like quite powerful and a good like charter mage in his own right. But he's also just like totally willing to follow Sabriel around because it seems like she knows what she's doing, which was fun to read about. So the romance is kind of like, just we've existed in proximity together for a couple of hundred pages and now we're going to be in love. And I was like, meh, I mean, it could have been better developed, but I just sort of enjoyed that the book was more about fighting zombies and talking to ghosts and becoming a cool, powerful necromancer. And the romance really just takes a backseat, which I enjoyed. Also, I do love the trope of pre-battle declarations of love. Like Touchstone has this whole, I love you, hope you don't mind thing, right before Karegor is about to like advance on everyone and they're about to have their final battle. And I do enjoy that trope when characters are like, ah, screw it, Rolly to die. I'm going to tell you I'm in love with you. It's a good trope. Yeah, that was fun. And then there's this part of the climax where Sabriel takes out the bell, but like if you ring it, everyone who hears it, including the listener, will die. And she like rings it to banish Karagor once and for all. But then she and like Touchstone kind of hold on to each other as like a way to stay in life. And it was like very dramatic. And I enjoyed that a lot. Oh, yes. I really liked that bell because as soon as they introduced it, I was like, okay, this is Chekhov's Necromancer bell. Someone is absolutely going to ring this and pay the price. And it actually gets a run more than once over the course of the book because they meet sabriel's father and he gives up his life to save sabriel and touchstone so she can like continue on and defeat caribor once and for all and he has to ring the bell and it's like even though i kind of got the sense that her father would not be coming out of this book alive i was like oh man i kind of hate that i call that but it's such a good magical thing because i like when magic in fantasy books really has a price and it's not just oh i waved my hand and i conjured something and i defeated the bad guy it's really like becoming an abhorson will consume your life and eventually you will probably have to sacrifice your life for the greater good. And the bell is really a physical embodiment of that. Like you can take out all the creepy zombies and the ghosts and the walking dead and the unnatural necromancers, but you'll have to give your own life up to do that. So I enjoyed that Sabriel is very much a book about the costs of magic and how Sabriel has kind of been aged prematurely and has spent her life walking in the shadows of death and that's like altered her permanently. And then, very much so, the bell is kind of the embodiment of how magic is something is that is necessary, and there has to be an a person, but it is not an easy role, and it will always take something from you. Yes, exactly. It's super interesting. Like throughout the book, they're trying various ways to try to banish Caragor, and they have like their plans. And when the plans fail, like this is the last thing they can possibly do, and Sabriel like knows that like. Maybe I'll die doing this, but I have to do it in order to banish Caragor. So she rings the bell, like knowing it'll probably cost her her own life because there's nothing else that can be done. And it's such a very satisfyingly dramatic moment because like she's backed into the corner and she has like one option, and she picks the bell. And it's really interesting to read about. Also, I liked that the big showdown against Caragor takes place at Wyverly College, which is the girls' school that Sabriel was sent to in Ancilesteer to be educated, because it's very much sort of a I don't know traditional heroic journey hero returning to like where they started again, but you've changed a lot since then. And there's also this whole thing where they're in a country that is not supposed to deal with magic and no one is trained against it. And the cost is like so much higher than if they were in the old kingdom. And people who are familiar with magic and the abortion and necromancers fight Caragor. So there's really the sense that there is this toll happening in the final battle because there's these innocent people who are not from a world that has magic being forced to confront one of the darkest evil magic creatures that has risen in centuries. So I enjoy that it came full circle. It really made the stakes feel quite real. Yeah, it kind of starts off like the difference between the Old Kingdom and Anselstyr is kind of played for laughs at first, like, oh, these people are, like, so determined to believe, like, this zombie is just, like, a lost person, and they're going to go put the zombie and talk to it, even though it's evil, or, like, oh, they can't possibly believe that magic is real, even though the evidence is right before them. But then when you get to the climax, you kind of realize, like, these people are, like, way underprepared to deal with a big evil necromancer like Karagor, and so it really shows you, like, there's a big cost to banishing someone as powerful as Karagor in a land where they don't believe in magic and they aren't prepared to defend against it. So it is very satisfying, like you said, that it goes in a full circle, but then also shows you like how big a cost there is to be a person. I'm really glad I finally got around to reading this. One of the nice things about running this podcast is that it will force me to get around to reading things I've been meaning to read for a while. Like I literally had a copy of Sabriel sitting next to my bed for about two years after I was like, huh, it's kind of funny that I read L'Rail, but not the first book in the series because there's a number of books set in this world and they all are sort of like chronologically take place at different times going from like Sabriel's time to like decades afterwards but they follow different characters and sort of different stories and are set in different places so you can read them independently but they really do sort of build on each other like Sabriel appears as an adult in L'Oreal but I just happened to read L'Oreal first because I think I thought the idea of a magical library was cool and then I was like man I should really get around to reading Sabriel at some point it just took me a really long time to do that. I'm still not sure how you only managed to read L'Oreal and not Sabriel, because I remember checking out all the books from our local library at the same time. So Sabriel is definitely in our house at the same time as L'Oreal, but I guess you just didn't read it. I do love L'Oreal, though. It's a sequel that takes place about 20 years later, and there's a magical library and people who can see the future and a very fun magic dog. But Sabriel is also good because it's the introduction to this world, and it's really enjoyable to read about Sabriel discovering like the rules and history of the old kingdom at the same time that you're also uncovering it yeah I would definitely like to go read the again now that I have read Sabriel because I think I would probably get more out of it because characters like Touchstone and Sabriel appear in the book and I was just like yeah I think you are probably established characters in this world but I didn't read the first one so I'm just going to enjoy it and not really know who you are but I think I would get more out of it and it would be fun to see Sabriel down the road as an adult As someone who did read this book for the first time as a kid, it was extremely influential on, like, my brain and how I think about fantasy and what kind of stuff I find interesting. Like, for example, the idea, like, maybe the necromancers aren't always the bad guy. I feel like it was pretty unique to Sabriel when I read it for the first time because... Most of the time in the books that I've been reading as a kid, the necromancers were the bad guys. And like, if you talked to ghosts, that made you evil. And it was really interesting to read more about this family whose job is to like keep the dead down and make sure people peacefully pass into the afterlife and stop like other evil necromancers from exploiting the dead and extending their lifespan. And that's always just been a really interesting concept. It's kind of a good exploration of like the way that having powers that can be used for evil doesn't make you an evil person. Yeah, that's so true. And I think that's still kind of unique to Sabriel, because obviously death is kind of a scary thing, but also we all have to embrace it as this really inevitable part of life that we can't escape. So then fantasy books with characters who can raise the dead and kind of skirt around that inevitability, I think oftentimes are written as the bad guys because it's such a hubristic thing to think that you can cheat death or bring people back from the edge. But with Sabriel, it's more of a death is inevitable and we have to peacefully allow people to pass on and lay them to rest. So instead of just being, ooh, the big, bad, scary necromancer guy is evil because he has powers that go against like nature and God or whatever, it's more nuanced. So we have people like the Abhorsons, but then we also have people like Caragor who are using their magic for unnatural means, but it feels like a very nuanced way of exploring a magical power that is most often gifted to the bad guys in fantasy. Yeah, and of course the imagery of death as a river with different levels has always stuck with me as a really cool concept. And I think it's just a fascinating idea that death is like a physical location in this fantasy world. Like it's another plane of existence, but it's also an actual place. And I've just always found that super interesting because it's not a representation of the afterlife that I've seen a lot in fantasy books, I think. So there's just a lot of things about the way that necromancy is portrayed in Sabriel and the way characters use it that have kind of always stuck with me since I read it as a, as a, at a pretty young age, because it's just such a fascinating and unique idea. And it's just like a very interesting book on several levels because the world building of the Old Kingdom versus Enselstyr is quite interesting, but there's also like how the characters in the Old Kingdom use their power. Ooh, and one other thing I liked is that the dead in this book are genuinely quite creepy because like I said, Sabriel, Touchstone, and Mogget are sort of traveling through the old kingdom trying to find her father. And along the way, Caragor like six a lot of his minions on them. So they have to escape from them. And there's this really neat bit where Sabriel is holed up in the ancestral home of the Aporsons, which is on an island in the middle of a river because the dead cannot cross um, running water. But the dead start building this bridge out of boxes of grave dirt across the river so they can get to the abhorrence house and it's just like the onroaching fear of the dead that are like inevitably coming for you was really creepy and i enjoyed that or there's one part where sabriel um goes to this village that has escaped to like an island nearby because they're a coastal village but the island has been infiltrated by one of the dead and they don't know who it is because the dead can look just like people or be possessed by evil spirits so there's sort of this like locked room mystery of these people were being beset by zombies so they left their coastal village to go escape to an island but one of the dead came with them and they don't know who among them is the dead um and i just enjoyed that there's sort of different takes on zombies as not just these like shambling mindless creatures but also these very smart evil creatures of darkness that like have it out for humans but also are smart enough to come up with like evil plans that aren't so easy to outwit very good. I enjoyed it. Very good evil minions in this book. Yes, I also loved the sequences in this book where Sabril has to deal with Karagor's minions. For example, the part where they're building a bridge made of grave dirt to get to the Abhorsons Island because throughout the book they've been like being constantly chased by Karagor's minions and they have to stay ahead of them because if they get caught then it's all over. And they managed to make it to the Abhorsen's house, which is a safe place supposedly because it's really well protected. And also it's on an island, so there's are running water. And they get there, like there's a sense of like, okay, like everything's gonna be okay. We can rest, we can regroup. And then we can try to figure out a way to like get ahead of these zombies again. And they look out the window and they start seeing the zombies building a bridge. And this is, it's this really great scary moment because you kind of realize like, oh, the dead in this world are like smart. They can think they're not just like zombies that get to the edge of the river and they're like, oh no. Like they can can go any further. They have like ways of getting to people and it's really fun and compelling because it feels like they're, le- they're legitimate enemies. Like even though Karagor doesn't appear until the end section of the book, it really does feel like his army is a legitimate threat that might actually catch Sabriel and her companions just because they're clever enough to think on their own and I really enjoyed that. And then there's this awful horrific thing where a lot of people who are part of Karagor's army were just people living in the old kingdom who died and were taken over by him so there's this sense that they've been corrupted by evil and that even if Sabriel has to take them out because they will kill her with no hesitation there's still sort of this price because they used to be people who didn't want to work for Karagor but they've been taken over by his dark magic and I just sort of enjoyed that moral conflict of like yes we have to take out the bad zombies but they weren't always bad zombies so we have to kind of spare a moment to think about the people that they used to be just, I, I really enjoy the complexity of the magic in this world, if that's not clear already. Although, it's not always that the dead are always completely evil, and it's just like, it's not always portrayed as always bad to talk to them. For example, Sabriel's mother died when she was a baby, so she doesn't remember her at all, but she has like a spell that will allow her to talk to her dead mother a few times and like ask her questions and so she does that and it's not portrayed as like a bad thing for Sabriel to briefly summon her mother back from the dead and talk to her about something and get information it's just it's bad when you try to like stay beyond when you're allowed to be in the world of the living so I kind of like that because Sabriel's mother is like sort of this force of good who only really appears in the book a few times, but it's enough for you to get the sense that like there are ways to talk to the dead that are like respectful and aren't kind of going against the laws of nature. It's just that when people like Caragor start trying to like extend their lifespan and corrupt the souls of the dead into an army of his own, then that's kind of where it like starts to go downhill. Right. I think it's very much that in the world of Sabriel, magic is a tool and you can use it for good in healthy ways, or you can use it for bad in ways that just sort of force your own agenda and harm others, which is a very nuanced take on it. I enjoyed that. It's not just like, ooh, ghosts and zombies, spooky. Anyone who consorts with them is evil. It's it's just more how you do it and how often you do it and in what ways you use it for is what matters. Yeah, so ultimately, I think one of the reasons that I love Sabriel so much as a book is that it has such a complex and interesting portrayal of necromancy. It's not just like you talk to ghosts, you are evil. It's like, well, Are you going against the natural laws of the world? Are you accepting death as an inevitable part of life and like mourning people who have gone on? Or are you trying to extend your own lifespan like far beyond it should be and killing other people in order to do that? So it's just a really interesting way of talking about how like power isn't inherently bad. It's like what you do with it that's bad. Also, it has my favorite new snarky cat demon, which is a genre in fantasy books, but I think Mogget is maybe now at the top of that list. Moggit really is a very good character. Also, happily, Garth Nix has written a lot of other books in this series. He wrote the original Abhorsen trilogy, which follows Sabriel and Lirael, but he also wrote some prequels and some short stories and some sequels. He actually has another book that just came out called Terseal and Eleanor, which is a prequel about Sabriel's parents that I would like to read at some point, but knowing like, how sadly their story ends, I don't know how emotionally devastating it will be because the book literally opens with Sabriel's mother dying from then going back to reading a prequel about her it's probably going to be very sad but I really enjoy the world building and characters in the series so I would definitely like to read it at some point I would definitely like to read more books in this series I think doing an episode on the rail in the future would be very fun because I have read it before but I remember almost nothing so I think it would be interesting to revisit that book at some point yeah so ultimately I feel like Sabriel is maybe for me personally the most influential book about fantasy necromancers just because of how well Garth Nix describes the creepy ghosts and zombies, but also how complex and interesting the magic system is and how it doesn't just portray talking to the dead as like completely evil, which was a very interesting take on necromancy that I haven't seen in a lot of other books. So I would say Sabriel is like definitely one of my top portrayals of necromancers. It kind of, it's a little bit of like a series, they're just like you, they're not evil, they're actually people, which is kind of fun. The next book that we'll be talking about is much more recent. It's The Bone Witch by Rin Chupeco, which is a young adult fantasy novel published in 2017. Like Sabriel, it's actually part of a trilogy, although unlike Sabriel, it doesn't tell a complete story, and it's pretty obviously the first in the trilogy, though we'll only be talking about the first book. It follows Tea Palavi, who Is a young girl who learns that she is a bone witch or a necromancer when she resurrects her brother fox at his funeral. After Thea resurrects fox he becomes her familiar so sort of this magically bonded creature that uh, follows her around and does her bidding but also is like only kept alive through her magic and Thea is brought in for training so she doesn't turn evil or mad both of which are dangers that bone witches face in this world. So bone witches are also called dark asha and they're basically necromancers And they use these things called dark runes that no one else can. And they can raise the dead and they can also lay the dead to rest. So, you know, pretty standard necromancy stuff. There are other types of witches in this world who can do stuff like see the future, conjure fire, conjure water, make potions. But bone witches are sort of the most feared and distrusted by many people because of their magical abilities. But they're also the only people who can kill Deva or these immortal monsters that rise every few years and must be killed and stopped from killing many other people. So as a result, the kingdoms in the world of the Bone Witch need dark Asha like Teya, except they don't really trust them and they have this very uneasy place in society where they're necessary for the safety of the greater good but on an individual level are not really trusted that well. It's a very similar sort of good people, bad powers thing that's in Sabriel, but Bone Witches don't have the same kind of respect that the Abhorson does. Like when Sabriel travels around the Old Kingdom and meets people, they're like, the Abhorson, we're saved. And in the Bone Witch, when Taya encounters someone who knows who's a Bone Witch, she immediately encounters a lot of fear and distrust because they're afraid that, like, maybe the Vowish will someday stop protecting them, maybe they'll become corrupted by the forces of dark runes and turn evil, and maybe they just think their power is really creepy, which is kind of an interesting take on how people would respond to necromancers. It's a little bit different than Sabriel, but also it's kind of understandable why people would hate and fear the, the dark Asha just because their powers are so strange. Also, unlike the world of Sabriel, Asha, which is the general term for people in this world who have magic with which is being sort of a specific subcategory. Anyway, Asha occupy a very specific cultural place in society and they're sort of similar to Geisha where they train in combat and magic, but they also train in singing and dancing and entertainment and fine art and politics. And they're often sort of these high society figures who consort with Kings and politicians and have to be like really good at sort of fancy artistic things, not just magic and potions and killing bad monsters. So part of Teo's training is not just learning how to fight and control her abilities, but also how to navigate politics and high society culture. It's definitely sort of interesting that this book acknowledges that if you are a very powerful magic user, you would also have to learn how to talk to like rulers of nations and convince them to like follow your advice or like let you into their castle to like put the dead to rest and other stuff like that like you can't just go around only knowing how to defeat the monsters you have to know how to like talk to the people who rule the kingdoms where the monsters live and you have to like learn how to gain their trust and gain the trust of the common people which is kind of an interesting idea like the Asha are witches but they're also politicians and entertainers which is a very interesting role in society that I feel like most magic users in fantasy books don't occupy they tend to only be magic users I think I wasn't super convinced why people whose main job is to fight off undead monsters also need to be good at like attending tea parties and dancing but it is sort of the part of the societal role that Asha's occupy in this world and it was kind of an interesting take on it because it means that Tea can be a very powerful valuable resource to the kingdom but she can also offend higher ups and not know how to navigate like a fancy party so there's sort of different stakes where there's not only will taya, control her abilities and learn to become like a a dark Asha who can work for the greater good instead of going mad. There's also the like, can Taya navigate politics and not accidentally offend the king and become like a political outcast? Yeah, it seems like only women are the ones who train to be Ashwas in this world, which is interesting. It seems like there are men who also have magic, but they're just kind of sent off to the military without any of the political or performance entertainment. So there's kind of this whole subculture of trainees and like almost family units that live together and train together, which makes up a big cast of the characters in the book because Taya is brought from her very small village in one kingdom to go train in a big capital city in another kingdom. So she becomes part of this big community of Although there's only a few bone witches that she's still kind of isolated within this community of magic users. There is a character that Taya encounters who's assigned male at birth but wants to train to be an Asha. Because, like you said, I think guys in this world who have magic traditionally go off and become soldiers or something called a heart forger, which we will discuss more in a couple minutes. But she meets this apprentice dressmaker whose name I think is pronounced Leek, who wants to be an Asha. And I'm not sure if Leek is supposed to be trans or non-binary or just a guy who's more interested in being an Asha than a soldier but I am sort of curious to see how that character develops because it's kind of a magical way of disrupting the gender binary. I have definitely read fantasy books where there is sort of a woman with magic do this one type of thing, men with magic do this one type of thing, and it often explores like maybe women want to smash the patriarchy and do cool things but I've never seen like what if you are supposed to go do guy magic but you want to go do girl magic so I think I'm curious to see how that character develops over the course of the series, if I read the future books. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting setup because, like you said, the Asha are kind of more performers and entertainers than soldiers. So it's sort of interesting that there's a character who was assigned male at birth who's more interested in that part of life. Although we don't quite know where we'll go yet because that plot line isn't really resolved by the end of the book. A really big chunk of the bone witch is taken up by Teya's training to become an Asha. There are actually two timelines in this novel. One of them follows Teya from about the ages of like 12 to 15-ish, as she trains as a bone witch with her mentor, Lady Michaela. And then the other one is when she is about 17, who's full and she's fully come into her power as a bone witch, but has been vanished from her homeland for some reason that is not clear to the reader at the time and is plotting revenge. And we don't know exactly what has caused Taya to tip into villainy since the future timeline is from the perspective of a bard who is recounting her story and he himself doesn't really know. But we do know that Teya will descend into villainy by the age of 17, but not really why or how, which is not a mystery that is solved by the end of the book because the two timelines haven't yet converged. I did find the pacing of the book a little bit slow, to be honest, but I think this is mostly because I was extremely curious to learn what causes Taya to turn to villainy, when in the past timeline, she is so convinced to master her power and become an Asha who only uses her power for, the, for good. So we're not really sure what causes her to become banished from her homeland and start plotting revenge against the whole world. And we also don't learn it. We don't learn her motivation by the end of the book, which I was a little bit exasperated about, to be honest. I also found the pacing for this a bit slow, I think because it's also quite a long book. It's around 400 pages, if I remember correctly, though I don't have my copy here to consult. And I think a lot of the training montage growing up into like a young adult and learning to harness your power did remind me a lot of older fantasy novels I've read, like those by Tamora Pierce. But I think because this has the dual timelines and is also so long, you kind of are like, can we get on with it? I want to see how she becomes a villain. Like, let's speed it up a little bit. So we don't actually find out what causes her to tip into villainy or what happens back in her home or like what her relationship with her brother is really like now that she's descended into villainy. By the end of the book, I think that's something that will probably be developed more in the sequel, because like you said, the timelines don't converge by the end of The Bone Witch. And it does very much feel like the first third in a story that will take place over three books, as opposed to just one story that happens to have some sequels. So I I do get why it was set up that way but it was a little frustrating because I was like I want to know why she became evil and it didn't give me the answer by the end. Yeah, and obviously the ending isn't completely unsatisfying because Taya's past timeline ends with some big battles and some reveals and some people fighting like a giant evil monster that's pretty fun but I finished it I was like wait hold up but we still don't know why she turned evil and it must be a really good reason because Taya in the past is just like completely convinced that she wants to prove everyone wrong and only be an Asha who uses her powers for good even though a lot of people hate and distrust her so I'm like okay but what caused her to change like it must be a good reason but we don't know what. And I actually still don't know because I haven't read the sequel yet, but I definitely would like to in order to find out what happened. I did enjoy getting to kind of learn about the internal politics of the Asha and their history and the various kingdoms they're part of. But because they're like this distinct societal part of the world, they also have their own kind of recorded history and famous figures and ways of interacting and sort of like tensions between the different training houses of Asha. So that does make up quite a lot of the book. And there's a lot of side characters who exist in this world, like Zoya and Lady Michaela, and taya sort of finding her place in the world and navigating like a world that is no longer just her with magic in a tiny village, the only person who has magic there, but her as someone who has magic in a wider community of people who all have magical abilities, even if hers is slightly different. So I did find that quite interesting because I think a lot of these characters will kind of come into play later on. And it'll be interesting to see how they react when Taya turns villainous. I will say that there were two side characters that I found a little bit confusing because Taya frequently interacts with two members of the royal family who are called Callan and Cance and they're cousins. And they appear in like a lot of scenes together. And I had a very difficult time keeping track of them because I'm not very good with characters who have the same who have like really similar names. And they also have another relative called Kalad. So I was like, okay, you really want me to tell the difference between Cance, Callan, and Kalad? I think you might be overestimating my ability, my abilities here. Yeah, there's a pretty large cast of characters because there's Teo's family and then there's the people that she's training with. And then there's the politicians and members of the royal family that she interacts with. And Kaelin and Kantz are the crown prince and his bodyguard. And I think there's like maybe some hints at a bit of a love triangle kind of thing coming up. But the thing is, if you put a gun to my head, I'm not sure I could actually tell you which one is the prince and which one is his bodyguard, because they always appear in scenes together and they both have names that start with K-A and include an N and an E at the end. And I'm just like, I am so sorry, but I cannot actually tell you who is who. <laughs> Yeah, and I feel sort of embarrassed admitting this because their whole thing is that the bodyguard really doesn't like Taya and thinks that she's a threat and the prince is quite friendly to her and she has a bit of a crush on him. But I just have such a difficult time remembering which one was which when they got mentioned in scenes they weren't in and especially when it was revealed that they had another relative who also had a K name and I was like, okay, this is too much, please help. So the moral of the story is that you if you were an author, like please, please pay attention to the do not have characters that whose names start with the same two letters rule. Like sometimes we are very foolish, and I can wrap my mind around like complex fantasy politics and systems of magic, but if two people have a similar name, I am an absolute goner. However, one character that I did think was really interesting and distinct is Teya's brother Fox. He is her older brother, and he joined the army when she was fairly young, and then he was killed by a Deva. of the immortal monsters and then she resurrected him at his funeral which is when she learned that she was a bone witch the first line of the book is her being like i didn't mean to resurrect my brother but i guess it just sort of happened which is really what happens because she has no idea that she's a bone witch until the funeral and then she's like he doesn't want to be in the grave he should he should be able to be let out and her parents are like stop it you're disrupting the funeral and then he actually like claws his way out of the grave and everyone's extremely shocked that he's a bone witch it's a really good scene and a great way of kind of setting the tone of like Taya has this power that can be used for bad, but she only really wants to use it for good, like to save one of her siblings. And I really liked him as a character because he's a really interesting character in that he's died once and he's come back to life, but he's also connected to Taya. And if she dies, so does he. Yes, the opening scene where she resurrects her brother is really great. I mean, the first sentence of this book is, let me be clear, I never intended to raise my brother from the grave, though he may claim otherwise, which is just great because you kind of get this, oh, wow, she like accidentally resurrected her brother. And then we get the sense that there is now some tension in their relationship because of this. And what I liked about their relationship is it's sort of a reversal because she's originally his younger sister and he's sort of like the protective one. She's actually kind of the baby of the family. But then when she brings him back to life because she like realizes she's a bone witch and raises him from the dead, it sort of reverses what was going on there because Now she is like the bone witch and he's her familiar and he is alive because of her. And she literally has to feed him her blood every month so he doesn't become a rotting zombie. So there's still kind of this thing where he's her older brother and he wants to protect her and like keep her safe, but also she is now the one who is literally responsible for his continued existence. And I think the reversal of like the roles in their relationship added some very interesting tension. I feel like there aren't that many fantasy books where a sibling relationship is at the very heart of the book. People often have like a lot of romance because You can have people meet and sparks can fly and there can be tension and drama. But I think the idea of having a sibling relationship that has this genuine tension and ability to evolve into other interesting forms is very intriguing. And I like the idea that it's at the heart of this fantasy series, like from the very beginning. The fact that the first person she resurrected is her brother has a really important impact on how she understands her magic and is going to navigate the world as a bone witch. Yeah, it's just a really fascinating way of exploring a relationship. And I also... Really liked that Fox and Taya are really close siblings, and a lot of the people in the book that Taya interacts with have ulterior motives because they're politicians, or they're her mentors, or they're her rivals. So a lot of people are not very like open about their motivations and are like lying about something. But in this case, Fox and Taya are just like generally fairly open with each other. Like they keep secrets from each other, but they also can be very honest with each other, and they have like a lot of fun banter that's really enjoyable to read about. So in this book, that's kind of full of like politics and like everyone's wearing a mask and like can you really trust anyone's motivations it's like very refreshing that Fox and Taya have like a very open relationship with each other where they can be honest about a lot of things like their opinions on other people there's a lot of scenes when they make fun of other politicians because they um, are like teenagers who are just kind of thrown to like politics and it's enjoyable to read about I like their sibling relationship a lot I think overall, my takeaway on this book is that I didn't find the plot that intriguing because so much of it is kind of training montage type stuff, but I found the world building and the characters intriguing and there's definitely a lot of setup for them to evolve in interesting places over the course of the book. So I, I did largely keep reading because I was like, I want to see how Taya ends up becoming a villain, but we don't actually really see that in the first book. So I think what I ended up finding interesting was sort of the character relationships and the magic And the asha stuff that is set up because also her training in magic doesn't even start like immediately because she has to like get to the city and sort of earn her place as an asha and like face people who think that she's naturally going to be evil because she's a bone witch so then there is some magic and sort of some battle stuff at the end but it's not very much a plot or action based book it's sort of more about characters learning to navigate this new world and politics and magic and all the stuff that comes with that Yeah it does take a very long time for Taya to start learning how to use her magic and there is an in-universe explanation for this in that bone witches are really unstable and they frequently become overwhelmed by their magic and they can like very easily die or become evil and so they don't want to start training Taya until it's clear that she can take the burden of learning how to use dark runes but it also does mean you're just like kind of sitting there reading like chapter after chapter of like Taya like doing politics stuff or like learning how to like sing and dance as a performer and you're just like can we get to the zombies please and eventually they get to the zombies and it's very satisfying but it does take a while. I don't mind slow paced books. I think they can be a really good way of exploring the character and the world building and getting you invested in what's going on but I I do feel like slow paced books have to be building to something and I'm not quite sure that the Bone Witch built like up enough and had a satisfying enough resolution for me to like enjoy having read all the previous slow chapters before because I was I really did think when I was reading this that the end would reveal how Taya became evil and it didn't quite reach that point and I was a little bit disappointed in that but that's just my personal opinion. Mm, I agree because there is some cool stuff that happens in the end like there's some zombies and there's a three-headed dragon and you really can't go wrong with a three-headed dragon in my personal opinion but Taya has still not become the villain that she is foreshadowed to be so it definitely feels like it is the first installment in a series that does not quite have like a satisfyingly wrapped up plot. And I I don't think this is an uncommon thing to encounter in fantasy series because you obviously have to keep the reader invested to continue reading further installments, but it definitely was like, wouldn't have minded a little bit more at the end. Yeah, my guess is that later installments in the series will be a bit more fast paced since a lot of the world building has been set up and all the major characters seem to have been introduced. But I do wish there would just been like a tiny bit more of magic, like especially in the first half of the book where Teia doesn't really know how to use any of her powers and she's still trying to figure out her place in the world. It would have been fun if there's a little bit more about magic and a little bit less about like buying pretty dresses. Ooh, one thing I did find interesting in this book's world building, that's not related to the necromancy is the concept of the heart's glass. And it's basically that in this world, people wear magical necklaces around their necks, as opposed to, I don't know, around their knees. Anyway, people wear magical necklaces that represent their hearts. And you can sort of tell someone's emotions or if they have magic by looking at it. I thought it was interesting because it's kind of surprisingly whimsical touch in a fantasy book where the magic is, you know, on a bit darker end of the spectrum and that it's about raising people from the dead and killing evil monsters that want to destroy the world. So I kind of like that. It's an interesting touch that I have not seen something similar in other books. But can I just say, I think having a constant accurate mood ring around my neck would actually be as embarrassing as heck. And like, I would not want to live in this world because of that. Yeah, that was a really interesting and unique part of the world. I agree that I would not want to have a heart class personally, but it is quite interesting. And there are some aspects about how it's dangerous to give your heart glass up to someone you love because it's literally giving your heart away. And like for example, Teo's mentor, Lady Michaela once gave away her heart to a man that she loved, and then he hid it and died before he told her where he hid it. So she's much less powerful than she's supposed to be, because along with her heart, she gave him a significant portion of her power, which is really interesting because it kind of takes like the metaphorical idea of like giving someone your heart and makes it literal. And then adds like some kind of like stakes of like giving it to the wrong person. And there are also these specific people within the world of the Bone Witch called heart Forgers, who are the ones that make these necklaces. And they require like a lot of specificity and fine training and one member of the royal family Khalid he mentioned earlier is in training to be a heart forger so I thought that was an interesting part of the book because I think something about necromancy is kind of like fulfilling a desire at the heart of a person like I don't want this person that I love to be gone I want like to be able to conquer death that's something that I think people can relate to, as in you don't want to let someone that you love go. And that's what kickstarts Taya's journey into becoming a bone witch. So then it's kind of interesting that there's this other part of magic that is also very much related to hearts and desires and what people want. And that I think should be intriguing because there's also some hints that something has happened to Taya's heart glass since she became a villain. And that is perhaps something that will be explored in future installments. Yeah, there's also some interesting rules about the dead and resurrection in the series. For example, Bone Witches can't resurrect each other, which is why it's so important that Teyas discovered at the beginning of the book, because they need the Bone Witches in order to keep down the Deva, but they also... Are slowly running out of bone witches because it's a very hazardous occupation. And I thought that was an interesting kind of like limit. And because kind of the first question that Taya has is like, well, why don't you just resurrect all the other bone witches to help you fight the monsters? And the answer is that they can't do that because it's just not something they can do. And there's also this interesting rule where you can. Resurrects the dead, but you can't make them obey you. Like, if you raise the dead, like, where did you bury your treasure? They don't have to tell you anything, which was quite fun. And there's another rule, which is that you can't make someone you're familiar if they don't want to be. Like, Taya raises her brother from the dead, but that's because he wanted to come back to life. She wouldn't have been able to do it if he didn't want to, which is sort of interesting because I feel like in Sabriel for example, necromancers are portrayed as having like ultimate power over the spirits they raise from the dead. But in this book, there's actually a lot of rules and the Asha are powerful but they're not all powerful and some of the rules that they have are like very inconvenient for them because it would be good to be able to make all the dead obey you or raise bone witches from the dead but they can't so they kind of have to deal with their limitations in interesting ways. I also get the sense that maybe part of Thea's future descent into villainy is trying to break or bend those rules because she's someone who has questions about these rules from the very beginning. And we know in the future timeline that she has sort of defied the Ashas and is out on her own as an outcast who has her own way of doing things and thinks she's doing what's necessary but what others view is like terrible. So I'm kind of curious to see if these rules will remain so hard and unbreakable throughout the rest of the series because I feel like if you're going to become a villain you're probably just not gonna care that much about rules on magic anymore. Yeah, exactly. Additionally, in relation, not in really, sorry, um, another aspect of the world building in this book is that it's sort of a blend of like East and West in terms of names and cultures. So Taya is Asian, but we get the sense that the world is sort of like this big melting pot and there's a lot of different kingdoms and cultures introduced. And the city that Taya goes to train in, which is called Neve, is sort of a hub of all of these kingdoms. So there's like various people from all over the world. It's not just sort of your stock medieval Europe fantasy with lots of white people and we forgot that people had contact with Africa and the Middle East kind of fantasy thing which I encounter a fair amount. Yeah I did like that because Taya manages to meet a lot of people from a lot of different cultures in her training so there's like a kingdom that seems to be sort of an analog to Japan and another one that's kind of an analog to Russia which was fun because like you said a lot of fantasy books are super white and don't really acknowledge that places other than europe exist so it was satisfying that in this world it's like very diverse and there's a lot of different traveling between countries and they're all very interconnected and like it's very possible for like teya to be asian and then like hang out with like someone from fantasy russia and i liked that a lot there was one thing that kind of bugged me about the cultural world building that i, I picked up this time around i've read the bone before like a very long time ago when it first came out and i reread it for this podcast And one thing that I think I sort of picked up on that I hadn't noticed the first time is there's one country, Draked, that I think is supposed to be Middle Eastern and Muslim because it's described as like being kind of a desert southern place. And there's a religion practice that involves women veiling themselves there. And it just felt like all the references to it were kind of like stereotypical in that it's this place that has like a lot of rigid sexism and like honor killing if women like don't follow the rules. And there's this sort of like rigid very like intense religion in place uh, and it just felt like a little bit stereotypical to me like which was a little bit disappointing to encounter in a book that otherwise is very like multicultural and has characters from different cultures interacting the villainous future timeline is narrated by a character from Dreykt who is like this bard character who's encountered Taya and is listening to her tell her story so a lot of the references we get to Dreykt are like through that point of view which mostly functions as a way for Teya to talk about like her villainous plans. But to me, it just felt like a little bit stereotypical. And I would be interested to see if later books feature more characters from Dreikt, because it didn't seem like an entirely nuanced portrayal of like culture and religion, especially when it's something that is inspired by a real world culture. So I don't know, I would be curious to see how that develops in future books, because it didn't seem like a very nuanced portrayal in this one. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. I think out of all the countries, introduced in the Bone Witch, Dreykt has kind of the least amount of characters from there. Most of the side characters are from like neighboring kingdoms to where Teya trains and Dreykt is like further away. So we don't get a very good sense of it. Kind of all we have is like a story filtered through the point of view of this bard who as we learned was banished from Dreykt. So it's, it's a little bit unclear to me if maybe his thoughts on his homeland are influenced by the fact that he was banished because we don't really know very much about it besides his point of view, but that is a good point. I, I hope that in the future in some of the series that it gets developed a little bit more nuanced. I think my favorite thing about this book was the way that it explored how bone witches aren't inherently bad people, despite having these very spooky powers of raising the dead. But that a lot of people hate or fear them, even though they the only ones who can put down the Deva and actually like are responsible for the greater good. That's a very interesting tension. And I think even though we said it's ultimately unclear why Taya ends up becoming a villain in the future timeline, it seems like she might actually have really good reasons. And it's not just like, I have evil powers, so I'm also evil. And it might be more of a like, I am tired of being treated like a villain, even though I am trying to be good. Maybe I should just kind of embrace what people already think about me and become evil. You know, very like the dark from shadow and bone, fine, make me your villain type thing. (laughs) Sorry, that's what I was thinking the whole time I was reading, to be honest. (laughs) No, yeah, that's fair. It's kind of the opposite of Sabriel in that the Abhorson and their family are totally accepted by the people of the old kingdom as being like the good necromancers who are on our side. And even though, bone witches like Teya are literally vital to the existence of the entire world because without them, like a bunch of evil monsters would come back from the dead and kill a bunch of people. They're so distrusted and feared by everyone that it's easy to see why Teya would maybe become sick of this and be like, you know what, you're all treating me like a villain anyway. I'm just going to go do what I want. Also, to be clear, when I referenced Shadow and Bone, that wasn't me being like, hoo hoo, this book is just a ripoff of Shadow and Bone. They're actually nothing alike in terms of world building or character or themes. I just think that fine, make me your villain is a very iconic line. I have fought that since I read Shadow and Bone at like age 12. Anyway, but like they're very different books, and I'm not saying that the Bone which is at all a ripoff of Shadow and Bone just because, you know, they have Bone in the title. They're actually not that similar at all. <laughs> they're really not, yeah. It's interesting to see where Taya goes in the rest of the trilogy, and I definitely want to finish reading it. It seems like she's going to become more of a Caragor than a Sabriel by the end of the series, but we also don't quite, like, know why she's become a villain, so it's entirely possible her reasons are so good that by the time we get to the point where the two timelines converge, I'll just be like, actually, you know what, you're just, you're totally right, go off, Taya. Well, she is a very sympathetic, well-meaning character throughout the Bone which is like, childhood timeline she wants to do the right thing she wants to not get in trouble like she does some sort of petty childish things but she is a child and she loves her brother and she wants to train well as an asha but we also get the sense that she becomes like aware of this growing injustice and that being a dark asha is really hard grueling dangerous work and they essentially single-handedly keep the kingdoms safe by putting down these evil monsters that periodically rise and try to kill everyone but they're not respected and they're often feared and shunned so i think there's sort of an interesting tension that you can already see growing there so i could very easily see that kind of thing leading Taya towards being like well if you're not gonna be grateful for me saving the day i guess i should just stop saving the day which is a very interesting villainous turn i do like it when stories have characters that are villainous but not just for like hoo, i'm evil because i am evil type of thing like i enjoy a good dramatic villain but i think the bone witch is definitely setting up a more nuanced take on a descent into villainy and why someone who starts out as well-intentioned and fighting for the greater good might sort of throw the towel in and become a better person by the end? Yeah. Even in the first book of the series where Taya is like largely a good person in the past who's trying to do a a good thing by training to be an Asha, there's a lot of people who hate her for like reasons that are just completely nonsensical. Like there are characters that hate her because another bone witch once failed to stop one of the monsters from rising and the monster killed some people and like Taya didn't do that. She had nothing to do with that. It wasn't her fault, but like people hate her because of that. And it's really easy to see like how easily she could become fed up with this attitude and be like, you know what, I give up, you guys don't appreciate anything that I'm doing and you're just like convinced I'm going to be evil. So how about I am evil? And like you said, I think it's definitely implying that some of her reasons for turning to ability are her desire to break the rules of necromancy and kind of like work around them because we get some reveals at the end of the book that imply she's like going to do some stuff that goes against what Asha are supposed to do with their powers. But it also seems like she has a very good reason for wanting to do those things. So ultimately, I would say that Taya has pretty much the exact opposite character arc from Sabriel in that Sabriel becomes like a heroic character who lives up to her father's legacy where it seems like Taya is going to eventually realize that she's not going to be a good person and that maybe she'll become a villain and have good reasons for doing so. But that's also a very compelling and interesting arc because so many times villains in fantasy books are not really like given like the opportunity to be like, this is why I am the way I am. And like, you would have done the same thing in my shoes. But with Taya, it seems like a large part of the book being her training is like a good way of seeing that Taya started out as a good person with good intentions. And if she ends up somewhere bad, then like she has a good reason for doing it. I don't think these two books are really meant to be read in conversation or anything. They're not that similar in terms of when they're published or characters and themes, but they both have this thing where necromancers have a very specific cultural part of the world building in these fantasy novels. So I think it's kind of interesting to think about them side by side, because in Sabriel, we have the Abhorsen where there's only one at a time and they're powerful and revered and necessary. Whereas in the Bone Witch, there are lots of dark Asha and they're powerful and feared and hated. So it's sort of interesting to think about these two side by side and how they have very different takes on this one specific type of magical ability. So I think it's been kind of fun to like discuss them in conversation with each other because they're not novels that are like inspired by each other or really intended to be in conversation as far as i can tell but they have these interesting parallels or just complete differences that i kind of like talking about also my final thought is that i'm sure a lot of bad things are going to happen to Taya over the course of this trilogy but i really hope her zombie horse is going to be okay truly if her zombie horse is killed by someone i could see that as a very fine justification for becoming a villain not gonna lie and with that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you'd like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at NeverTwinsCast, where I largely spend time complaining about audio editing. We are on Instagram at Never the twins Shall meet. We're on Tumblr at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet.tumblr.com. And we also have a website with more general information, which is Never the twins Shall meet.com. Our next episode will be on Legendborn by Tracy Dion. So if you'd like to hear some screaming about Arthurian mythology and angsty emo boys and cool girls with swords, stay tuned.